Chapter 15 of A Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a reading by Paul King, pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj. A short account of the history of mathematics by W. W. Rouse Ball. Chapter 15. History of mathematics from Descartes to Huygens. Circa 1635 to 1675. I propose in this chapter to consider the history of mathematics during the forty years in the middle of the seventeenth century. I regard Descartes, Cavalieri, Pascal, Wallace, Fermat, and Huygens as the leading mathematicians of this time. I shall treat them in that order, and I shall conclude with a brief list of the more eminent remaining mathematicians of the same date. I have already stated that the mathematicians of this period, and the remark applies more particularly to Descartes, Pascal, and Fermat, were largely influenced by the teaching of Kepler and Desrogues, and I would repeat again that I regard these latter and Galileo as forming a connecting link between the writers of the Renaissance and those of modern times. I should also add that the mathematicians considered in this chapter were contemporaries, and although I have tried to place them roughly in such an order that their chief works shall come in chronological arrangement, it is essential to remember that they were in relation with one another and in general were acquainted with one another's researches as soon as they were published descartes subject to the above remarks we may consider descartes as the first of the modern school of mathematics René Descartes was born near Tours on March 31, 1596, and died at Stockholm on February 11, 1650. He was thus a contemporary of Galileo and Desargues. His father, who as the name implies was of a good family, was accustomed to spend half the year at Rennes when the local parliament in which he held a commission as a councillor was in session, and the rest of the time on his family estate at Lescartes at La Haye. René, the second of a family of two sons and one daughter, was sent at the age of eight years to the Jesuit school at La Fleche and of the admirable discipline and education there given he speaks most highly on account of his delicate health he was permitted to lie in bed till late in the morning this was a custom which he had always followed and when he visited pascal in sixteen forty seven he told him that the only way to do good work in mathematics and to preserve his health was never to allow any one to make him get up in the morning before he felt inclined to do so an opinion which i chronicle for the benefit of any schoolboy into whose hands this work may fall on leaving school in sixteen twelve descartes went to paris to be introduced to the world of fashion here through the medium of the jesuits he made the acquaintance of midorge and renewed his schoolboy friendship with father mersen and together uh, with them he devoted the two years of sixteen fifteen and sixteen sixteen to the study of mathematics at the time a man of position usually entered either the army or the church 
Descartes chose the former profession, and in 1617 joined the army of Prince Maurice of Orange, then at Breda. Walking through the streets he saw a placard in Dutch which excited his curiosity, and stopping the first passer asked him to translate it into either French or Latin. The stranger, who happened to be Isaac Beekman, the head of the Dutch college at Dort, offered to do so if Descartes would answer it. The placard being in fact a challenge to all the world to solve a geometrical problem there given. Descartes worked it out within a few hours, and a warm friendship between him and Beekman was the result. This unexpected test of his mathematical attainments made the uncongenial life of the army distasteful to him, but under family influence and tradition he remained a soldier, and was persuaded at the commencement of the Thirty Years' War to volunteer under the court at Bucoy in the army of Bavaria. He continued all this time to occupy his leisure with mathematical studies, and was accustomed to date out the first ideas of his new philosophy and of his analytical geometry from three dreams he experienced on the night of November 10, 1619 at Newburgh when campaigning on the Danube. He regarded this as the critical day of his life, and one which determined his whole future. He resigned his commission in the spring of 1621, and spent the next five years in travel, during most of which time he continued to study pure mathematics. In 1626 we find him settled at Paris, a little well-built figure, modestly clad in green taffety, and only wearing a sword and feather in token of his quality as a gentleman. During the first two years there he in interested himself in general society and spent his leisure in the construction of optical instruments, but these pursuits were merely the relaxations of one who failed to find in philosophy that theory of the universe which he was convinced finally awaited him. In 1628 Cardinal de Bray, the founder of the Oratorians, met Descartes and was so much impressed by his conversation that he urged on him the duty of devoting his life to the examination of truth. Descartes agreed, and the better to secure himself from interruption moved to Holland then at the height of its power. There for twenty years he lived, giving up all his time to philosophy and mathematics. Science, he says, may be compared to a tree, metaphysics is the root, physics is the trunk, and the three chief branches are mechanics, medicine, and morals, these forming the three applications of our knowledge, namely to the external world, to the human body, and to the conduct of life, and with these subjects alone his writings are concerned. He spent the first four years, 1629 to 1633, of his stay in Holland in writing Le Monde, which embodies an attempt to give a physical theory of the universe, but finding that its publication was likely to bring on him the hostility of the church, and having no desire to pose as a martyr, he abandoned it. The complete manuscript was published in 1664. He then devoted himself to composing a treatise on universal science. This was published at Leyden in 1637, titled The Discourse on Method, and was accompanied with three appendices entitled Optics, Meteorology, and Geometry. 
it is from the last of these that the invention of analytical geometry dates in sixteen forty one he published a work called meditations in which he explained at some length his views of philosophy as sketched out in the discourse in sixteen forty four he issued the principia philosophy as a greater part of which was devoted to physical science especially the laws of motion and the theory of vortices in sixteen forty seven he received a pension from the french court in honour of his discoveries he went to sweden on the invitation of the queen in sixteen forty nine and died a few months later of inflammation of the lungs in appearance descartes was a small man with a large head projecting brow prominent nose and black hair coming down to his eyebrows his voice was feeble considering the range of his studies he was by no means widely read and he despised both learning and art unless something tangible could be extracted therefrom in disposition he was cold and selfish he never married and left no descendants though he had one illegitimate daughter who died young as to his philosophical theories it would be sufficient to say that he discussed the same problems which have been debated for the last two thousand years it is hardly necessary to say that the problems themselves are of great interest but from the nature of the case no solution ever offered is capable either of proof or disproof and whenever a philosopher like descartes believes that he has at last finally settled a question it has been easy for his successors to point out the fallacy in his assumptions all that can be effected is to make one explanation somewhat more probable than another I have read somewhere that philosophy has always been chiefly engaged with the interrelations of God, nature, and man. The earliest philosophers were Greeks, who occupied themselves mainly with the relations between God and nature, and dealt with man separately. The Christian church was so absorbed in the relation of God to man as to entirely neglect nature. Finally, modern philosophers concern themselves chiefly with the relations between man and nature. Whether this is a correct historical generalization of the views which have been successfully prevalent, I do not care to discuss here, but the statement as to the scope of modern philosophy marks the limitations of Descartes' writings, and they may be taken as the commencement of the modern school. Descartes' chief contributions to mathematics were his analytical geometry and his theory of vortices, and it is on his researches in connection with the former of these subjects that his reputation rests. Analytical geometry does not consist merely, as sometimes is loosely said, in the application of algebra to geometry that had been done by Archimedes and many others and had become the usual method of procedure in the works of the mathematicians of the 16th century. The great advance made by Descartes was that he saw that a point in a plane could be completely determined if its distances, say x and y, formed two fixed lines drawn at right angles in the plane, were given with the convention familiar to us as to the interpretation of positive and negative values. 
and that though an equation f of x y equals zero was indeterminate and could be satisfied by an infinite number of values of x and y yet these values of x and y determine the coordinates of a number of points which form a curve of which the equation f of x y equals zero expresses some geometrical property that is a property true of the curve at every point on it descartes assured that a point in space could be similarly determined by three coordinates but he confined his attention to plane curves it was at once seen by descartes and his successors that in order to investigate the properties of a curve it was sufficient to select any characteristic geometrical property as a definition and to express it by means of an equation between the current coordinates of any point on the curve that is to translate the definition into a language of analytical geometry the equation so obtained contains implicitly every property of the curve and any particular property can be deduced from it by ordinary algebra without troubling about the geometry of the figure the points in which the two curves intersect can be determined by finding the roots common to their two equations I need not go further into details, for nearly everyone to whom the above is intelligible will have read analytical geometry and be able to appreciate the value of its invention. Descartes' Geometry is divided into three books. The first two of these treat of analytical geometry, and the third includes an analysis of the algebra then current. It is somewhat difficult to follow the reasoning but the obscurity was intentional and due to the jealousy of descartes translated i omitted nothing says he except design i had expected that people who have any math skill would not fail to say that i had not said anything that has not already been said about the coordinate system but i have hopefully made this topic more intelligible the first book commences with an explanation of the principles of analytic geometry and contains a discussion of a certain problem which has been propounded by pappus in the seventh book of his synagogue and of which some particular cases have been considered by euclid and apollonius the general theorem has baffled previous geometricians and it was in the attempt to solve it that descartes was led to the invention of analytical geometry the full enunciation of the problem is rather involved but the most important case is to find the locus of a point such that the product of the perpendiculars on m given straight lines shall be in a constant ratio to the product of the perpendiculars on n given straight lines the ancients had solved this geometrically for the case m equals one n equals one and the case m equals one n equals two pappus had further stated that if m equals n equals two the locus was a conic but he gave no proof descartes also failed to prove this by pure geometry but he shewed that the curve was represented by an equation of the second degree that is it was a conic section subsequently newton gave an elegant solution of the problem by pure geometry in the second book descartes divides curves into two classes namely geometrical and mechanical curves. He defines geometrical curves as those which can be generated by the intersection of two lines each moving parallel to one coordinate axis with commensurable velocities, by which he meant that dy by dx was an algebraical function. 
as for example is the case in the ellipse and the cissoid. He calls the curve mechanical when the ratio of the velocities of these lines is incommensurable, by which he meant that dy by dx was a transcendental function, as for example is the case in the cycloid and the quadratrix. Descartes confined his discussion to algebraical curves and did not treat of the theory of mechanical curves. The classification into algebraical and transcendental curves now usual is due to Newton. Descartes also paid particular attention to the theory of the tangents to curves, as perhaps might be inferred from his system of classification just alluded to. Then the current definition of a tangent at a point was a straight line through the point such that, between it and the curve, no other straight line could be drawn, i.e., the straight line of closest contact. Descartes proposed to substitute for this that the tangent was the limiting position of the secant. Fermat, and at a later date Maclaurin and Lagrange, adopted this definition. Barrow, followed by Newton and Leibniz, considered the curve as the limit of an inscribed polygon when the sides become indefinitely small, and stated that the side of the polygon when produced became in the limit a tangent to the curve. Roberval, on the other hand, defined a tangent at a point as the direction of the motion at that instant of a point which was describing the curve. The results are the same whichever definition is selected, but the controversy as to which definition was the correct one was nonetheless lively. Descartes illustrated his theory by giving the general rule for drawing tangents and normals to a roulette. The method used by Descartes for finding the tangent or normal at any point of a given curve was substantially as follows. He determined the center and radius of a circle which should cut the curve in two consecutive points there. The tangent to the circle at that point will be the required tangent to the curve. In modern textbooks, it is usual to express the condition that two of the points in which a straight line, such as y equals mx plus c, cuts the curve shall coincide with the given point. This enables us to determine m and c, and thus the equation of the tangent there is determined. Descartes, however, did not venture to do this, but selecting a circle as the simplest curve, and one to which we know how to draw a tangent, he so fixed his circle as to make it touch the given curve at the point in question, and thus reduced the problem to drawing a tangent to a circle. I should note in passing that he only applied this method to curves which are symmetrical about an axis, and he took the center of the circle on the axis. Much of the reasoning in these two books is not easy to follow, but a Latin translation of them with explanatory notes was prepared by F. de Bonne, and an edition of this with commentary by F. van Schouten was issued in 1659 and had a wide circulation. The third book of Geometrie contains an analysis of the algebra then current, and it has affected the language of the subject by fixing the custom of employing the letters at the beginning of the alphabet to denote known quantities, and those at the end of the alphabet to denote unknown quantities. Descartes further introduced the system of indices now in use, but I would here remind the reader that the suggestion had been made by previous writers. 
though it had not been generally adopted but very likely it was the original on the part of descartes i think also that descartes was the first to realize that his letters might represent any quantities positive or negative and that it was sufficient to prove a proposition for one general case compared to the old procedure in this book he made use of the rule for determining a limit to the number of positive and negative roots of an algebraical equation which is still known by his name and introduced the method of indeterminate coefficients for the solution of equations he believed that he had given a method by which algebraical equations of any order could be solved but in this he was mistaken he made use of the method of indeterminate coefficients of the other two appendices to the discourse was one devoted to optics the chief interest of this consists in the statement given of the law of refraction this appears to have been taken from snell's work but not only is there no acknowledgment of the source from which it was obtained but it is enunciated in such a way so as to lead a careless reader to suppose that it is due to the researches of descartes descartes would seem to have repeated Snell's experiments when in Paris in 1626 or 1627, and it is possible that he subsequently forgot how much he owed to the earlier investigations of Snell. A large part of the optics is devoted to determining the best shape for the lenses of a telescope, but the mechanical difficulties in grinding a surface of glass to a required form are so great as to render these investigations of little practical use descartes seemed to have been doubtful whether to regard the rays of light as proceeding from the eye and so to speak touching the object as the greeks had done or as proceeding from the object and so affecting the eye but since he considered the velocity of light to be infinite he did not deem the point particularly important the other appendix on meteors contains an explanation of numerous atmospheric phenomena including the rainbow descartes was unacquainted with the unequal refrangibility of rays of light of different colors and the explanation of the latter is necessarily incomplete descartes physical theory of the universe embodying most of the results contained in his earlier and unpublished le monde was given in his principia sixteen forty four and rests on a metaphysical basis he commences with a discussion on motion and then lays down ten laws of nature of which the first two are almost identical with the first two laws of motion as given by newton the remaining eight laws are inaccurate he next proceeds to discuss the nature of matter which he regards as uniform in kind though there are three forms of it he assumes that the matter of the universe must be in motion and that the motion must result in a number of vortices he states that the sun is the centre of an immense whirlpool of this matter in which the planets float and are swept round like straws in a whirlpool of water each planet is supposed to be the centre of a secondary whirlpool by which its satellites are carried these secondary whirlpools are supposed to produce variations of density in the surrounding medium which constitute the primary whirlpool and so cause the planets to move on in ellipses and not circles all these assumptions are arbitrary and unsupported by any investigation it is not difficult to prove 
that on his hypothesis the sun would be in the center of these ellipses and not at a focus as kepler had shewn was the case and that the weight of a body at every place on the surface of the earth except the equator would act in a direction which was not vertical but it will be sufficient here to say that newton in the second book of his principia in 1687 considered the theory in detail and shewed that its consequences are not only inconsistent with each of kepler's laws and with the fundamental laws of mechanics but are also at variance with the ten laws of nature assumed by descartes still in spite of its crudeness and its inherent defects the theory of vortices marks a fresh era in astronomy for it was an attempt to explain the phenomenon of the whole universe by the same mechanical laws which experiments choose to be true here on earth cavalieri almost contemporaneously with the publication in sixteen thirty seven of descartes geometry the principles of the integral calculus so far as they are concerned with summation were being worked out in italy this was effected by what was called the principle of indivisibles and was the invention of cavalieri it was applied to numerous problems connected with the quadrature of curves and surfaces the determination of volumes and the positions of centers of mass to the complete exclusion of the tedious method of exhaustions used by the greeks in principle the methods are the same but the notation of indivisibles is more concise and convenient it was in its turn superseded at the beginning of the eighteenth century by the integral calculus but its use will be familiar to all mathematicians who have read any commentary on the first section of the first book of newton's principia in the application of lemmas two and three to the determination of areas volumes and so on bonaventura calvieri was born at milan in fifteen ninety eight and died at bologna in november twenty seventh sixteen forty seven he became a jesuit at an early age and on the recommendation of the order he was in sixteen twenty nine made professor of mathematics at bologna and he continued to occupy the chair there until his death i have already mentioned cavalieri's name for the part of the book that he took in introducing the use of logarithms into italy he was one of the most influential mathematicians of his time but his subsequent reputation rests mainly on his invention of the principle of indivisibles the principle of indivisibles has been used by kepler in sixteen o four and sixteen fifteen in somewhat crude form it was first stated by cavalieri in sixteen twenty nine but he did not publish his results till sixteen thirty five in his early enunciation of the principle in sixteen thirty five cavalieri asserted that a line was made up of an infinite number of points each without magnitude and a surface of an infinite number of lines each without breadth and a volume of infinite number of surfaces each without thickness to meet the objections of guldinus and others the statement was recast and in its final form used by the mathematicians of the seventeenth century it was published in calvieri's six geometrical exercises in sixteen forty seven the third of which is devoted to a defence of the theory these exercises contain the first rigid demonstration of the properties of pappus cavalieri's work on the subject were reissued with his later corrections in sixteen fifty three 
The method of indivisibles is simply that any magnitude may be divided into an infinite number of small quantities which can be made to bear any required ratios, for example equality, one to the other. The analysis given by Cavalieri is hardly worth quoting except as being one of the first steps taken toward the formation of an infinitesimal calculus. One example will suffice. Suppose it be required to find the area of a right-angled triangle. Let the base contain n points and the other side n times a points. Then the ordinates at the successive points of the base will contain a, 2a, and so on to n times a points. Therefore, the number of points in the figure is a plus 2a plus dot 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 plus na, the sum of which is half n squared a plus one half n times a. Since n is very large, we may neglect the one half n a is inconsiderable compared with the one half n squared a, and the area is one half n a times n, that is one half the altitude times the base. There is no difficulty in criticizing such a proof, but although the form in which it is presented is indefensible, the substance of it is correct. It would be misleading to give the above as the only specimen of the method of indivisibles, and I therefore quote another example, taken from a later writer, which will fairly illustrate the use of the method when modified and corrected by the method of limits. Let it be required to find the area bounded by the parabola APC, the tangent at A, and any diameter DC. Complete the parallelogram ABCD. Divide AD into N equal parts. Let AM contain R of them, and MN be the R plus one-th part. Draw MP and NQ parallel to AB, and draw PR parallel to AD. Then, when n becomes indefinitely large, the curvilinear area, APCD, will be the limit of the sum of all parallelograms like Pn. Now the ratio of the area Pn to the area BD equals the ratio MP times MN is to DC times AD. But by properties of the parabola, MP over DC equals AM squared over AD squared, which is also equal to R squared over N squared and mn over ad equals 1 over n. Hence, mp times mn over dc times ad equals r squared over n cubed. Therefore, the area of pn over the area of bd equals r squared over n cubed. Therefore, ultimately, the area of apcd over area bd equals 1 squared plus 2 squared plus 3 squared plus dot 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 plus n minus 1 squared all over n cubed, which is also equal to 1 sixth of n times n minus 1 times 2 n minus 1 all over n cubed, which in the limit 1 to 3. It is perhaps worth noticing that Cavalieri and his successors always used the method to find the ratios of two areas, volumes, or magnitudes of the same kind and dimensions. That is, they never thought of an area as containing so many units of area. The idea of comparing a magnitude with a unit of the same kind seems to have been due to Wallace. It is evident that in its direct form the method is applicable to only a few curves. 
Cavalieri proved that if m be a positive integer, then the limit, when n is infinite, of 1 to the m plus 2 to the m plus 3 to the m dot 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 plus n to the m all over n to the m plus 1 is 1 over m plus 1, which is equivalent to saying that he found the integral to x of x to the m from x equals 0 to x equals 1. He also discussed the quadrature of the hyperbola. End of chapter 21, part 1. Recording by Paul King, http pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj.